Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And this morning we welcome Global IQ listeners from around the world to this month's broadcast, The Nine Billion People Question, a special report on feeding the world. John Parker, author of the special report and globalization correspondent for The Economist, joins us from London. Now, as you submit questions for John throughout the broadcast via the chat feature of the online forum, we ask that you be sure, if you can, to include your name and location so we know from where you're listening. A special greeting to World Affairs Council members, subscribers to The Economist, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and the law firm, Jones Day, one firm worldwide. And to find a World Affairs Council in your community, please go to worldaffairscouncils.org. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ audio audiocast archives available on both iTunes and the Council's website at dfwworld.org. Now, during the program, you have the chance to raise your Global IQ and win prizes courtesy of The Economist and our sponsors by being the first to correctly answer one of three IQ challenge questions via the online chat. So stay tuned for opportunities to win. John Parker is The Economist Globalization Correspondent. And, John, you certainly have had some very interesting jobs with The Economist. You were bureau chief in Washington, Moscow, and Brussels, assistant editor, business editor, Europe editor, and books and arts editor. We're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. To get us started, uh, last week, World Bank President Robert Zelnick said in a statement, global food prices are rising to dangerous levels and threaten tens of millions of poor people around the world. He cited evidence that 44 million more people have been pushed into poverty since last June. Uh, Paul Krugman, in a column in last week's New York Times, wrote that high food prices have certainly been an important trigger for the popular rage that we're seeing throughout the Middle East. And your report begins with a warning. At the start of 2011, the food industry is in crisis. John, what are the reasons for this increasingly dire dire situation? Um, There are factors that are kind of structural long-term. There are sort of more short-term things. And there are things that people talk about which are, in my view, pretty much irrelevant, but I'll mention them because people talk about them. Um, so the big long-term kind of structural things are, well, I, I would say twofold. One's the, the growth in demand uh, that's coming from the big emerging markets uh, and from the rise in the world population. So world population is now um, a little bit below 7 billion. In 2050, it'll be 9 billion. So... We have to feed all those extra people, but uh, it's not primarily the extra people, just the sheer numbers, um, which we should be able to do pretty easily because the world uh, population grew more than 2 billion in the past 40 years. It's more that they're getting wealthier and their diets are changing. They're moving to cities uh, where people can afford to eat different stuff and need and want to eat different stuff. So um, they're eating more meat, more vegetables, and less grain. And the reason that's significant is that all these things are kind of thirstier, more profligate in the use of resources. Um, just one example, uh, somebody worked out that it takes like 
16,000 litres of water. I have no idea how many gallons that is, a lot anyway, to produce a kilo of beef and about 3,000 litres to produce a kilo of, um, of wheat. So, you know, like fat orders of magnitude uh, uh, greater in terms of the use of resources to produce meat, and we're going to eat more meat. So uh, that's a major thing. And the other sort of uh, long-term factor, which I think makes a difference, is that for various reasons which I can go into, the yields of the staple crops are uh, growing much less than they used to. You know, yield is the absolute basic fundamental kind of measure for measuring the health of agriculture. And uh, 30 years ago during the Green Revolution, the yields of the world's staples like uh, wheat, rice, and corn were, go- were growing kind of 3, 4, 5% a year. They're now growing half a percent, 1% a year. And that's a big deal because for the first time since the Green Revolution, uh, yields are growing more slowly than the population. Um, you know, the, actually, world population growth has come down, as I just said, but yields have gone down even further. So there's this gap between the growth in the yields and the growth in the number of people. Um, and so that's a big deal. That's, uh, so that's like the long term. Um, the short-term factors, in some ways, are more important. I'll just run through them very quickly because I know, don't want to talk uh, too long. But um, very, very briefly, there's kind of weather-related things, you know, uh, fire and drought in Russia uh, last year, also in Argentina. We've had, you know, floods in Australia. All these are big uh, grain exporters. Um, they've been compounded by sort of policy, well, in my view, policy mistakes, but anyway, policy actions. Uh, Russia imposed uh, export bans. They simply banned the export of, of their wheat because they wanted to keep it for their own people. And um, one result of that was essentially panic buying by grain importers, um, uh, so, you know, they've been running up the price because they've just been, you know, they're just worried. They look at the export bans and they think, where, where are we going to be able to buy the food that we need this year? So they've been stocking up like crazy. Um, and then you have a bunch of other things from outside agriculture, really, like the fall in the dollar makes it cheaper to buy uh, in domestic currency terms. That's to encourage people to buy. Um, high oil prices tend to drive up farmers' input costs because essentially fertilizers are sort of nitrogen in the air plus energy. And that's what uh, nitrogen fertilizer is. So nitrogen um, uh, fertilizer prices tend to track oil prices. And lastly, there are biofuels. Um, The biofuels policy, a lot of countries say uh, we have to have a kind of minimum amount of our energy needs has to come from renewable resources, meaning biofuels. And so uh, people are, are growing uh, especially maize, uh, corn, and sh- sugar, uh, which used to be available for food and is now being turned into ethanol. Um, so that's the range of factors. Um, the irrelevant one is evil food speculators, which uh, the G20 is making a big fuss about at the moment, uh, the group of 20 largest economies, that is. Um, they want to kind of zero in on the role of uh, financial investment in agriculture. My own view is that well, the jury's out on this one, uh, but it's certainly not the primary source of uh, the food price spike. And, you know, to put it in perspective, um, you, you, we talk about how the population of the world is going to increase to approximately 9 billion in, 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 in 2050, but as you pointed out in the report, that's not just two extra Indias, but if we include those who are hungry now, which I assume uh, I've read is, you know, at least a billion, we're really looking to add food for three Indias. Yeah, 
I mean, um, if your aim, which seems to me like a reasonable aim, is to say, okay, we need to feed the world properly, then it's not just a matter of feeding those extra mouths yet to be born, but feeding those who aren't eating properly now. So that's like 3 billion people. 2 billion yet to be born, 1 billion who are going hungry now. Um, I mean, I've got to say that still seems to me to be not in itself a reason for thinking that, you know, that's impossible. We've done that in the past 40 years. Um, that's roughly what the world population uh, has grown by in the past 40 years. Um, uh, to feed these extra people, we need of the order of a, like 70% increase in all foods. That ranges from about a 30-40% increase in staple cereals, as I said, wheat, wheat rice, maize, um, to about 100% doubling the increase of meat. Uh, as I said, you know, you will we'll need to eat proportionally more meat, so you know, we need to we need to produce that amount extra. That it averages out at about 70%. But but in the past 40 years, we've increased food prices by sorry, we've increased food production uh, by more, much more than 70%. I mean, the the increase in food over the last 40 years has been of the order of uh, of, of 150%, i.e., twice what we need in the next. 50 years. So um, it's not the absolute amount of food and the absolute number of people we need to feed that's the problem. It's the sort of whole range of constraints on that, you know, the whole range of problems that we're having to deal with in order to uh, produce that extra food that's the problem. And so, you know, the gist of my worry is it will actually be harder, though it doesn't sound it, it will actually be harder to increase food production by 70% in the next 40 years than it has been to have increased it by 150% in the last 40. John, help us understand the different methods of, of wheat farming. You, you went into considerable detail about this in the report. You said there are three different kinds of wheat farming, African, the Green Revolution, and modern. Could you elaborate on this? I think it will help us for the rest of the Yeah, discussion. well, this is, this, is a, uh, this is kind of wild generalization, and probably you know, a lot of farmers won't fit into this. But, but by and large, you can define, you can see three different sort of categories of farmers. The African, what I call the African farmers, the people who get about a ton a hectare. I can't translate it into bushels an acre. You're, <laughs> trust me, it's like a one ton per hectare. Uh, that's sort of the very rough average yield in Africa. And it's what you get if essentially you have virtually no inputs. You know, this is real organic farming. Um, there's, no, there's no inorganic fertilizer, no nitrogen fertilizer, no pesticides, no fungicides, you know, nothing added to the soil. And as I said, you get, you, if you do that, you know, you don't do anything and you get one ton a hectare. Um, then there's the sort of green revolution level of agriculture, which took that one ton or so, and now produce sort of four, four, five tons a hectare. That's the average, you know, that's what you get in India, let's say, or parts of Eastern Europe. I'm actually parts of Eastern Europe is lower than that, but, but this is what you get when you have the simplest kind of, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a normal range, if you like, of organic and inorganic fertilizer. N you know, nothing special, not the most cutting edge stuff, ditto, not the most cutting edge pesticides, or basic commodity pesticides and so on. You're getting, I don't know, let's say three to five tons a hectare. And then there's like the top of the range. Um, this is 
seven, eight, nine in some farms in Britain, which is the, rather surprisingly the, the most productive agriculture in the world, um, you're getting you know te- up to ten tons a hectare. And this is these are the best seeds. This, this is putting a lot of organic and inorganic fertilizer, the very best pesticides. This is, as it were, the state of the art. You know, this is, and often, not much in Britain, but um, in, in, um, in parts of America where you get the best soils, you're also using uh, genetically modified uh, crops. So um, that, that's sort of the Rolls-Royce um, of, of, of agriculture. These numbers, by the way, I'm, uh, these are kind of the wheat numbers. I mean, soybeans, you never get 10 tons per hectare, you know, so I've been sort of scaled down. But this range between, you know, bottom of the line being one and the top of the line being kind of, you know, eight times better than that, that, that and, and then there's like a middle band, that's sort of fairly standard throughout many of the staple crops. Quite a big range, in other words. I mean, it certainly is. You know, you don't have like a car industry, you don't have... You know the most efficient car industries are not eight times more efficient than the most than the least efficient. But the most efficient farmers are eight times more efficient than the least efficient farmers. You know, it, let's let's look at India for a minute because I think it touches you know really a, a, a wide spectrum. For a considerable period of time, India was was a hero thanks to the Green Revolution. It appeared to have solved its food problems, it could feed its people. But I read in your report that nearly half of India's children, five and younger, are, are malnourished. And I'm wondering, you know, when you look at the enormous success of, of uh, Dr. Borlaug's Green Revolution and his use of fertilizer, um, now you're seeing that the government has these, you know, large fertilizer subsidies. Um, some people say that it's being overused, and, and now that's reducing crop yield. What what are the long term consequences of, of subsidies in India and 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 elsewhere? Well, now let me just deal with India separately because India is a, sl- a special case in many ways. Slightly odd. We don't really understand why it should be, but sort of Indian nutritional standards. I mean, the, both the kind of amount of basic staple crops and um, staple foods. I mean. Uh, and the amount of you know nutrition that people get from you know vegetables and meat and so on, all that is much sort of lower than you'd expect. It's it's lower than you'd expect given India's level of income, and it's it's improved much less than you might have expected um, given the increased wealth in India over the past uh, 15 years of economic growth. So we don't really know why that is. It it, it has something to do with that fact that Indian agriculture is not. It's been a bit variable. It's not been as successful as Indian sort of service sector growth, um, you know, telecommunications, back office staff, staff that, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's also got to do with social factors, which I don't talk about in the report, but I, I, I think it, when it comes to India, very important, you know, um, position of women, um, the problems of caste and class. India has a lot of, so-called, they call them scheduled tribes, um, kind of, you know, disadvantaged groups of people in the population. Uh, and these people are not getting as much food as they sort of should be. Um, and I think these social factors go a long way to explaining why Indian kind of nutritional standards are so low. Um, on the broader point, uh, India also exemplifies 
um, a, a basic problem of kind of over-subsidizing certain inputs. And um, a classic one here is uh, they subsidize uh, electricity for farmers to make it easier for them to pump water. And one result is that the water table in uh, the main wheat growing area um, of North India, which is the Punjab, has just plummeted. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. You go back uh, 40 years and the water table was, you know, a couple of yards below the surface, you know, six, ten feet. Now it's like 200, 300, in some places 500 feet below the surface. And, you know, it's taking a long time to pump it up, but that doesn't really matter too much to the farmer because the electricity and the pumps are virtually free. But um, at some point, they're just going to run out. And uh, that point's not that far away. Uh, not so much because there is literally there is many water there, though there must come a point in which that's true. But it's more that as Indian cities grow, um, they're running short of water because we're going to the farmers. And you know, there will there there's already very near a point where where the Indian government is going to say, I'm sorry, you know, we can't like not have water in our capital Delhi because you farmers are just sloshing it on the fields um, and using too much. Uh, and so at some point, I think there'll there'll be like a fight between the farmers and the cities. And my forecast will be that the cities will win. And you really do see an enormous problem, I guess, with the infrastructure in India, the lack of power in, in so many areas. And then I guess there, there's also some laws that, and regulations that prevent corporations from from being as, as involved in farming as you might see in other countries and, and the difficulty in, in gathering large tracts of land because of the way hereditary uh, inheritance works in India. Yeah, that's true. Um, I've got to say, though, that uh, actually sort of it may be worse in India, but restrictions on foreigners owning land are very common. I mean, there are restrictions in America, too. Uh, it's not easy. It's not impossible, but it's not easy for foreigners to own land. And, you know, uh, so, and, and many, many countries you know, treat agricultural land as something special. Uh, foreigners can't own land, or you know, it's difficult for corporations to come in and kind of consolidate. Um, so that's another kind of universal, I think. Um, in general, that's especially a problem because, um, you know, the traditional way in which, uh, I'm going, going back, you know, hundreds of years now, uh, the traditional way in which farmers increased um, food supplies uh, was to just grow more land, you know, just take more land on the cultivation. Um, and, you know, we, we basically can't do that anymore. There's uh, one of the things I think that the report does slightly differently um, from kind of previous looks at agriculture is is to say that there's a little bit more land available than we used to think. But we used to think there was virtually none. Um, the World Bank did a recent study which showed that, you know, there's, there's know, 500 million hectares um, uh, of, of land that at some level might be used for some level of farming. Um, I mean, it, it, this very much depends on um, uh, on the sort of the cost and how far it is from, you know, water, whether it needs to be irrigated and so on. But 500 million hectares is a lot more than most people used to think. So land can do a bit. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, I mean, I'm giving you a number, 500 million, but this is probably the flakiest number there is in world agriculture at the moment. Um, uh, others put the figure much lower, and uh, as I said, the, the real amount depends on how much it costs to you know, build a road there so that farmers can get their crops out, 
build some irrigation, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the infrastructure costs are very important. Um, uh, but as I said, um, the basic pattern here is land, we don't have a huge amount of it available, and that means actually that probably more efficiencies are going to be needed, and it's varied from country to country, but by and large, efficiencies and sort of consolidation of land have tended to go hand in hand. So, you know, these little postage stamp village, uh, uh, fields and villages are probably going to begin by, you know, putting a couple of the postage stamps together and making like a big, like an envelope-sized farm. And then from an envelope-sized farm, we'll get like a piece of paper-sized farm, and then, you know, slowly we'll scale up. And, and, that and we'll talk about those efficiencies in, in just a minute because it seems like there's uh, different views on that. But before we do that, I'd like to do our first challenge question, sure. and it is, over 100 schools in the coastal region of which African country are facing closure due to students missing class in search of water and pasture? Is it Nigeria, Mozambique, or Kenya? Enter this correctly, and you will receive a subscription to The Economist. So we look forward to getting that. And I have a number of questions here from our, our <laughs> listeners, and, and so please continue to send those in. I'm not um, sure I know the answer to that. All of them sound plausible candidates, I've got to say. <laughs> we'll find out if we have a lucky listener or a knowledgeable listener in just a second. Now, there really are two groups who espouse different strategies for, for solving the food crisis. And uh, I guess if you're sitting there looking at a full plate, it's easier, easier to have a certain view. But one wants to feed the world and eliminate hunger using new advances in science, uh, plant breeders, uh, genetically modified plants, etc., um, the the other is uh, concerned about animal husbandry and in the environment, and uh, as as I think you wrote in your report, it really boils down to what's for dinner or will we even have dinner? Right. I mean, yeah. The the the, the gist of the of the argument of the second group is is really you know we need more organic farming, and organic farming can do it in a more kind of sustainable and friendly way than you know modern agriculture. I came away pretty skeptical of that view. Um, it seemed to me that or, that the or, organic movement, kind of free-range eggs, you know, anti-battery farm, that kind of thing, um, is both understandable and, uh, and, and kind of in some respects possibly desirable in rich countries that can afford it. But the fact is there's just not enough organic material out there increase yields by the amount needed um, in my opinion anyway uh, to feed 9 billion people it's just that you just can't do it um, it would in practice require a much more extensive i.e. you know using more land uh, form of agriculture and uh, you know that while I, I said there's, a, there's some land available but you know, we don't really know how much it is, and I think if we went over to a more organic form of farming, you know, around the world, uh, I fear that we'd be cutting down the Amazon, you know, like there's no tomorrow. So in practice, I think it wouldn't be economically or environmentally desirable. Uh, so I came away thinking that sort of genetic modification uh, oh, new technology would play a very important role. But in that, I don't mean primarily what most people tend to mean by genetic modification, which is um, taking a gene from another organism, 
uh, and putting it into a plant to change the behavior of that plant. So, you know, class, the classic pattern here, I'm, I don't know if your readers know how it works, so let me just uh, mention it very quickly. Um, sort of so-called BT corn uh, consists of BT stands for um, a, a Bacillus thuringi, I think, um, which is a bug that lives in the soil. And you take uh, a gene from that bug and you slot it into a corn plant, and that makes it resistant to a particular kind of um, uh, uh, weed killer, Roundup. You know, so it's so it's mm-hmm. Roundup ready corn. So you you plant this, you plant the corn, and then you blitz the field with Roundup, um, and basically everything dies in the field except your corn. So there are no pests. Um, there's nothing to eat it. There are no weeds, so there's nothing to compete with it. And, you know, you get a big yield increase. Um, that's an example of, that's the classic example of genetic modification. Um, but what I'm talking about here is a little bit different. Um, so it's to essentially describe the genome of the wheat plant or the rice plant um, and look at the genes of the plant, not not the genes of another animal or bacillus or you know some other some other species, but of the plant itself, and work out which genes are associated with the traits you want and breed from them. Um, it's essentially what plant breeders do normally, but plant breeders inevitably t- it tends to be kind of hit and miss. You know, you can't see like inside the genome of the plant. Um, and it takes sort of generations, uh, so it's a slow process, you know, it takes generations upon generations to make sure that the plant's indeed are breeding true and that you really do have the characteristics. But if you can look inside the genome and associate, you know, a particular gene with a particular uh, uh, characteristic that you want, then you just sort of identify that gene, you take that gene out, you put it into other gene, uh, into um, other uh, uh, a species of the same plant, i.e., you know, you take the, the gene from one wheat plant put it in another wheat plant, and that, and you grow, you combine the best features um, of that wheat plant, the best genetic features, and and you uh, you breed that way. It's called marker selection, uh, marker um, marker selected breeding, and um, this for me is sort of the big hope of. Uh, genetic, uh, of new technology in plants. You know, I was struck by just the, the, the really sensitive balance that's required as well as the ongoing science for us to be, be successful in, in feeding the world. I mean, it's, farmers really are in a, in a continuous battle against predators um, in this need to develop new seeds all the time. I mean, how do you transfer that knowledge with, say, as you mentioned, the U.K. is is very advanced and successful in developing new technology, as is, I assume, the United States. It must be very difficult to transfer that technology to to Africa and some of the areas where it's so direly needed. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right, and it, it is so beginning to happen. I mean, ju- ju- just on the on the, the pests and so on, I mean, one sort of estimate is that uh, pests sort of reduce the, the uh, yield from a new seed by one or two percent a year, just you know, you introduce a new seed and pests start to eat away at it. So, you know, ten years later, you've you know you've lost more than you know ten fifteen percent uh, of the yield, and you basically got to introduce a new seed. So, so it's sort of a continual battle 
I describe it in terms of um, uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice through the Looking Glass's Red Queen. You know uh, that you've you know here you've got to run just to stand still. That's sort of the that's the nature of plant breeding. Um, it used to be the case that in Africa. Uh, one of the big problems they face is that since there was virtually no research in, tr- in traditional African crops, uh, sort of millet, sorghum, cassava, that kind of thing, um, you know, they really were sort of, they weren't failing to run to standstill, you know, and they were going backwards because of this. Um, that's changed a bit. Oh, I know, changed more than a bit, actually. Um, we are beginning to see kind of plant breeders turning to these traditional crops and making big improvements in them so that we've got so-called semi-dwarf sorghum. That's a, a, um, a, a new hybrid which uh, sort of does for sorghum what the Green Revolution did for uh, rice and maize. Um, somebody is beginning to work out how to... Uh, deal with the biggest problem that affects the cassava. I don't know if you even know what cassava is. It's like a yam. It's like a, mm-hmm. like a sweet potato. It's like, no, I've had it before. Yeah, it's a classic, <laughs> classic African root crop. That's um, right. Its big problem is that it's subject to viral diseases. And viral diseases are horrible to deal with because they're a virus, right? So they're not, sub, you know, you can't deal with them by, um, pe- by pesticides and fungicides. <laughs> you know, they don't... They, 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 the, the viruses are just immune to that kind of thing. So um, there's a, uh, there's, there has been some work in, um, in genetic modification to make the uh, kind of you know modified cassavas resistant to the viral diseases that have been laying waste to them in Africa. So we are beginning to see um, genetic modifi- genetic modifications improving traditional African crops. And that's all gone along with the kind of the beginning of a of a green revolution in Africa. And I, I you know, people have talked about this, the uh, green revolution in Africa, for decades. And it's always been a puzzle, you know, why hasn't it happened? And I, but I do, th- and I may be wrong, you know, I may be, I may just be repeating the kind of you know over optimism uh, that people, um, you know, were guilty of uh, 20 years ago. But I genuinely think we are beginning to see the first sprouts of the green revolution in Africa. This is one component of it, and there are others. John, who's really leading that? Are, say, are the foundations like the Gates Foundation? Are, are, are they making good strides? Or yeah, are I the think other I think players? the Gates Foundation's made a huge difference. I mean. I mean, essentially, if you go back to the mid-90s, uh, between, let's say, 1995 and 2005, that, that decade, um, people, governments around the world have begun to think that uh, we'd sort of solved all the problems of, of farming. And, you know, organizations like the World Bank were saying, you know, you've got to invest, you know, advising people to invest in, in industry and in services. And, and people just weren't taking, paying much attention to the problems of agriculture. I mean, nobody was, you know. Uh, organizations like the World Bank, as I said, governments, companies, and so on. And it was about 2005 that the Gates Foundation, which I don't know if you remember this, but the Gates Foundation was originally set up to do health. And, um, and focusing on malaria and uh, yeah. HIV. And it's actually, yeah. uh, health problems, right? So, so mm-hmm. they think that, and they began to think, wait a minute, we, we're finding it really difficult to, to treat health without treating kind of nutrition and, you know, the, 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 the general 
sort of um, well-being of people. And they felt, okay, we can't do health without nutrition, and we can't do nutrition really without agriculture. And so it was, I think, you know, if you go back to about the mid-2000s and, and after, who were the first people to raise the alarm, you know? Who was the canary in the mine? It was Gates. And I, I, give, I give him and the foundation a lot of credit. There are, of course, there are people who have been, you know, there are other people in the field too. It wasn't, I'm not saying it was just Gates. But, you know, Gates was the richest development foundation. It was the biggest, actually the biggest real kind of NGO and charity in the world. And so for them to turn around and say, we're really going to try hard in farming, I think that made a big, big difference. And, it, you know, it was the first of what turned into a series of changes um, at the governmental level, among companies, and among other NGOs and, and development banks. And people began to get alarmed with, uh, about agriculture and, and really to change their the priority they gave it, they, it increased the priority. It's been a bit patchy, it hasn't been consistent, but it has changed, and, and as I say, I think Gates was first in the field. Let me congratulate Dagmar from Dallas, and I know Dagmar is a reader of The Economist, so her subscription will be extended. She said over 100 schools in the coastal region of Kenya are facing closure due to students missing class in search of water and pasture. Thank you, Dagmar, for giving us the correct answer, and I want to remind everyone to send in your questions. Um, we have a question here from Vicas in Texas. What is the difference between the per capita calorie consumption in the United States and the developing world countries? Really? And uh, that's, a, that's a broad question, but it really gets us into how diets are changing, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about waste, because sure. I think we show that in this country. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, don't, you know, don't, don't be too, uh, uh, quote me, you know, <laughs> too, too accurately on this, but it's of the order of, you know, 1,800, 2,000 calories a day in developing countries. That's sort of just above the, uh, at or above the minimum um, that's been recommended by the World Health Organization. In America, it's more like 3,000 calories a day. Um, uh, so in other words, a lot more. Um, it, but this, this, this varies hugely. You know, men eat and need more than women in general. You know, tall, large guys need more than children. You know, it, so it varies according to age, gender, um, you know, uh, 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 sort of what kind of job you do, and so on. So, so, uh, but, but very roughly, it's of the order, as I said, you know, kind of rounding it to the nearest 500, it's sort of 2,000 in developing countries, 3,000 in America. Mm -hmm. um, let's do our second challenge question. And the winner will receive the 2011 wall calendar from The Economist. And I have to say, I look forward to changing the month because they're really just great characters and uh, a great calendar. The question is, American ethanol is extremely inefficient, producing only 1.5 units of energy output per unit of input. Brazilian ethanol is markedly more efficient, producing how many units of energy per unit of input? Is the correct answer 8, 6, or four. 
and before we give the answer to that and talk in more detail about ethanol, uh, Frank asks this question. Please address how aid has both helped and hurt food supply chains in developing countries. It appears that food aid is often late in arriving, and then uh, when, do, when it arrives, cuts out the established wholesalers and retail distributors, creating a market condition that forces many of these businesses to close. And I know you did touch upon that in your special report. Yeah, look, I mean, food aid is like a tragedy in the sense that uh, it does do damage to the local environment, uh, has done in the, uh, certainly in the past, but, you know, what do you do? You know, people are starving. Um, they need the food. Um, so it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a horrible and necessary burden. I mean, it's horrible in the sense that it does damage the local, it can and often does damage, you know, the local productive capacity, and it's absolutely essential because otherwise people will starve to death. Um, so the real question about food aid is, you know, how do you m m maximize the, the drawbacks and minimize, um, sorry, how do you maximize the benefits and minimize the drawbacks? <laughs> we more or less know that in most famines, there's usually enough food in the area. It's not common that um, a famine is directly caused by a massive collapse and there's simply no food anywhere. Usually there's some food somewhere. It may be just in the... In, in, in um, the uh, kind of neighboring provinces, or very frequently, you know, it, there, there's food actually in the, in the uh, starvation-affected area, um, but it's like, it's too expensive for people uh, to buy it. Um, that, that happened, for example, very famously uh, in um, a famine uh, in, in, that took place in Bengal in 1943, when there was really not, you know, we, there, was, there was a modest fall in the rice harvest, but um, uh, the, a, um, a big, full, uh, a, a quite a big rise in the in the wheat harvest, and actually Bengal was continuing to export wheat during a famine in which like three million people died of starvation. Um, to my shame, you know, it happened in 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 Britain. I mean, in the Irish potato famine, uh, there was wheat being grown in Ireland and exported from Ireland, even while people were starving to death. So. Um, that's a very characteristic pattern. And one way in which food can deal with this is actually just literally to buy the food that is available locally and distribute it to, to uh, uh, the starving population. And that has a sort of a smaller impact uh, on local food markets because, you know, those farmers who have got a surplus to sell are able to do it and, uh, and the money stays in the, stays in the area. Um, and that's what the World Food Programme uh, has tended to do. I mean, uh, the World Food Program has shifted. It used to be, essentially, it used to take, you know, sacks of grain uh, from the big grain exporters, sort of dump them, as it were, in the famine-affected areas. And it had this negative impact that, that, as it were, obviously the local farmers who did have something to produce couldn't compete with free food. Um, uh, it's switched over now, uh, increasingly, to buying food locally, um, and that hopefully, you know, gets this balance better between, um, you know, helping starving without doing too much damage to producers who. But have John, to didn't, don't, let's look at the United States for a, a moment uh, on the 
the way food subsidies work here in our public policy. Doesn't that sort of work counter against what you're suggesting? Well, uh, what do you mean? That um, that, that America sort of subsidizes... uh, uh, um, (laughs) So the notion, your notion here is that, that, that America encourages... You know, sort of in vertical overproduction of um, exactly. staple crops, and that just gets dumped on the world. That, I mean, yeah, that's uh, that is what used to happen. I mean, the you know the World Food Program was indeed set up at least partly to sort of recycle almost the 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 uh, surplus um, the, the the surplus food production of America, and and there was a sense that you know food wasn't really a problem because we we not just America, Europeans, you know, Australians, Canadians, uh, we could feed everyone, you know, and if they can't grow the stuff themselves, we'll give it to them if the worst, comes to the, if the worst came to the worst. And that's sort of what happened. Um, America, by the way, doesn't, though, um, it doesn't do quite as much damage by, uh, as, as, other, as uh, Europeans used to do. Euro- Europeans used to really sort of... Um, buy grain from farmers at a fixed high price, uh, the price is higher than the world price, and just like dump, you know, dump the surplus uh, on the world. America doesn't do that, has not never done it, but has, really does it very rarely. You know, farmers tend to get the world market price or something close to it uh, for their crops. So uh, while they do get some help, you know, through various farm programs, it doesn't work in quite the damaging way uh, that uh, European farm support used to. Europeans have, have changed from that too, but um, the worst kind of farm support is where uh, the, the government steps in, says, I'll buy your, uh, whatever, wheat, grain, uh, at, um, you know, uh, at a certain price, higher than the world price, um, of course, farmers think that's great, you know, <laughs> I'm getting a good price, I'm going to grow more of this stuff. <laughs> and then they overproduce, uh, and then um, what do you do with it? You kind of dump it on world markets. And that, re- that really was a very, very damaging model. Um, and we are slowly moving away from that. I want to congratulate Hugh Smith. He uh, correctly identified that uh, Brazilian ethanol is markedly more efficient, producing eight units of energy per unit of input. And so talking about some curiosities in public policy, um, let's talk about renewables. The chairman of Nestle, Peter Brabeck, is quoted in a report um, talking about government biofuel targets, and um, he said, this is the craziest thing we're doing. Uh, the United States has a target of 30% of the energy used for transportation that will be used for renewables. China's is, I think, only 5%. Um, Give us your insight on um, ethanol, biofuels, and and the differences uh, uh, between Brazil and the United States and the impact that it is having on staple items uh, uh, like like maize and and, and corn. Well, I, I don't usually agree with Fidel Castro about anything. But he did criticize people. I don't think you'd be at the Economist very long if you did. No. <laughs> but I, I, he said he, he he said you know food should be used for uh, as, um, uh, corn should be used for food, not to drive cars. And I think that's basically right. Um, uh, biofuels policy is obviously uh, adopted by um, a lot of. Uh, 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 a, a lot of mainly rich countries on the grounds that, you know, 
the energy that it produces is renewable, in inverted commas, so therefore kind of sustainable. Um, and so uh, people have encouraged it, encouraged ethanol uh, production um, by, 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 you know, saying we will take a certain amount of the crop uh, and, and turn it into biofuel, and turn it into ethanol, uh, turn it into biofuels. Um, I, I, I basically agree with Peter Brabeck. Um, it is kind of crazy um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, your one, your question touches on. Um, I mean, it it takes sort of seventy-five units of energy to produce a hundred units of ethanol in America. Um, so, you know, the energy, it, the energy efficiency of this stuff is fantastically low. That's a study, by the way, from Washington State University, I think. Um, it's improved a little bit since that study, but not... I mean, it, it's still a rather inefficient energy source. And the American ethanol program is essentially protected by high-tariff walls. Uh, you know, you, you can't import kind of cheaper maize to, to, um, uh, to, to, to turn into ethanol. Or it's basically a form of subsidy to the American uh, corn grower, in, in my opinion, anyway. They don't agree with that, obviously. Um, and something of the order, not far short of two-fifths of the total American maize crop, uh, goes, it goes to ethanol. Um, and that's like a gigantic amount of, of crop that could be otherwise used for food. And, you know, if it were used for food... Um, the total supplies of maize would increase by 10, 15%. That's, that's what it is, the order of, you know, in terms of world maize uh, production. It's, um, I think it's 14% of, of total world maize production. It goes into the American ethanol program. And that's a lot. Um, not all kind of biofuels policies are the same. Um, Brazil, for example, uses sugar, not corn, to produce its ethanol. And the factory is kind of wonderful. You know, you go to these things and they're, they're, they're much more market sensitive than the American program. And, and they literally switch the sugar cane from, you know, they turn a switch and they produce sugar. And they turn the switch to another place and they produce ethanol. Um, and that just depends on the market price, the relative market price of ethanol versus sugar. Um, it's not protected uh, behind tariff walls. It is more efficient, and it's more efficient both that uh, Brazilians are quite efficient uh, sugar growers. Um, it's also efficient in that, as your, uh, uh, as the, the, your, your, your uh, very well-informed uh, uh, listener uh, said, um, uh, while the sort of efficiency use of uh, U.S. ethanol is uh, 75 to 100, you know, very low, the efficiency use in Brazil is something of the order of like 15 to 100, you know, 8 to 1 anyway, um, uh, as opposed to 1.5 to 1 in America. Um, so it is a sort of, it is a kind of more uh, energy efficient fuel. Um, so as I said, I mean, not all, not all biofuels are, policies are the same, but in my view, um, uh, sort of these artificial targets to, in, to encourage um, supposedly, you know, environmentally friendly fuels just strike me as, uh, and well, more important, strike the chairman of Nestle as just a terrible, terrible idea.
And I guess you're not very optimistic about U.S. policy changing on this, at least not in the short well, term. Well, the trouble is that once you yeah. sort of set a subsidy in motion, you know, I mean, Hard I, to take it hard, away. Well, yeah, I mean, one can hardly blame the corn growers for it. But uh, if I were a corn grower, you know, I wouldn't be very happy about the idea that, you know, my <laughs> I don't have this guaranteed market for my corn anymore. And, you know, I mean, I suppose they would say, well, look, we've we've geared ourselves up for this. And you've just suddenly abandoned us. I mean, that was, I guess they would make that argument. I, I mean, I, I think the policy was a mistake, and it, it ought to be wound down, in my view. Here's a good softball question from Frank. How do we get the report that we're talking about? Oh, well, by The Economist <laughs> this week. I mean... <laughs> not, um, not just by The Economist. It comes out uh, on the issue dated... Um, uh, the 26th of February, that's, so that's uh, the, the issue date is this Saturday. That's Saturday, and so if you have an iPad or a Kindle, you can read it right. on, so on can, download it on Thursday night. You can download it from Thursday night onwards. You know, you talked a, a bit about some of the key essential components in agriculture, fertilizer and, and, and water and land. Let's talk in the remaining minutes uh, a bit about water. Greg asks, what impact does drip irrigation and other technical solutions have on food production? And um, I also read in your report that Israel has been remarkably e- efficient in how it's uh, handled its uh, use of uh, or, or li- limited its, 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 its waste of water. Uh, so could you give us some insights on Sure, yeah, on, on look, um, okay, so, so, I mean, at the moment, probably water is the single biggest constraint on farming. I think that's, that, you know, uh, I, I talked earlier that of the other demands on water. Uh, farming uses of the order of um, 70% of all the world's water. Um, and water is particularly important because irrigated areas um, are like on average twice as productive as rain-fed farming. So water, you know, makes makes a huge, huge difference. And uh, drip irrigation um, can usually double the more or less double the efficiency with which water is used. So that's to say, um, instead of wasting uh, something like um, sort of six half of it, let's say, you can reduce the waste. Uh, to 25%, something like that. Israel, you mentioned, is probably the most efficient user of water. Uh, you know, it has to make the desert bloom. And uh, it wastes, the, the estimate is it only wastes 10% of the water. So, you know, if you can uh, cut water waste to Israeli levels, then, you know, we would be facing a much smaller water problem than we do face now. Realistically, that's not going to happen because Israel is very, very, very efficient because it's got sort of drip feed irrigation and other kind of micro systems, you know, almost everywhere. And um, they're, they're very expensive. Uh, Israel has invested a lot over time. Um, and, you know, if we had to do that, you know, we would be, well, the estimate is, you know, it would take something of the order of a a trillion dollars over the next 40 years, I know there's a lot of money, uh, to invest in, you know, drip feed to, to make a substantial amount of difference. That, and that's a lot, I think it would, that, that, that is an estimate from the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, um, by the way. Um, it will probably happen whether literally a trillion dollars worth of, uh, of investment is going to go into irrigation, I don't know, but, but irrigation is a, it, it, it's a sort of um, a cost thing, you know. 
you just you'll need to build the irrigation systems and if you can you'll be able to improve the use of water dramatically um, uh, you know drip feed and other kind of micro systems are much more efficient than sort of big just canal irrigations and um, so the more of those that you can put in the better and as, as diets change, as, as you said, meat is thirsty. Right. Um, we're going to be eating more meat and vegetables, and m- meat and vegetables uh, are, use much more water than, you know, corn and wheat and rice. Well, not yeah, so and rice. Rice is, of course, rice goes in paddy fields. But, but you know, <laughs> so that uses a lot of water. But that's all, re- you know, most of it, that's kind of rain-fed. So that's and, and when our listeners uh, do pick up the, the, the issue, they'll see that graph that you have that just shows how the, um, um, the in, increase in, in, in meat over the next, what's forecast for the next uh, 10, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, you know. Um, I mean, people are... China has, uh, just to give you an indication of what a big difference it makes, um, China moved from eating like 10 kilograms of meat a year to 50, you know, five times the amount. It's time for our last challenge question. How many pounds of corn are needed to produce one pound of beef, according to Bloomberg? Is it three pounds, seven pounds, or 12 pounds? Answer this question correctly and get a -a one-of-a-kind World Affairs Council luggage tag. We have not really talked yet about waste, and uh, I am just struck, especially in, in, in this country when you go to a restaurant or even a grocery store, about how much food is discarded. Um, and you point out in your article that um, a lot of food is, is wasted in, in, in developing countries. Tell us more about that. Yeah, staggering amounts of wasted. Um, uh, there are sort of two different categories of waste, if you like, and it might be helpful actually to describe the first one as not so much waste as losses. So in developing countries, you get sort of of the order of a third to a half of the crop lost. That's through rats eating it, or it rots in the field, or, you know, if it's milk, it spoils because it hasn't got to the dairy in time, that kind of thing. As I said, it's a third to a half, up to a half. And that's primarily a problem of, you know, lack of investment. I mean, this would be solved by spending some money on kind of processing plants, you know, on having a dairy near enough so that the farmer can take his milk to market before it goes off, um, or uh, a proper silo so that you can store your grain, uh, you know, for several months without the rats eating it all, or whatever. Um, we, in the West, uh, waste roughly the same amount, you know, 30 to 50%, but we waste it long after the farm gate, long after the sort of uh, primary processing stage, you know, we waste it in the fridge or in shops or in restaurants. Um, and, you know, uh, 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 this, is, um, this is actually, I, in my opinion, rather more difficult to solve. Because the first one, as I said, can be solved with, with investment in, in sort of food processing. Uh, but ours is a matter of behavior and prices. You know, we throw away, literally, I'm not making this one up, you know, we throw away 45% of all the salads that we, that we buy. And I, it's because, you know, I suppose we, we buy the salads in a sort of fit of enthusiasm for, you know, improving our diets. And then, you know, we're not as good as we thought we were. <laughs> and so we throw them away. But it's, and, and we can afford to throw them away because, you know, ultimately, 
you know, the, even we 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 can. It doesn't matter that we've just chucked away like a you know a dollar's worth of uh, of lettuce. You know, we can afford to waste a dollar, or at least we think we can. Um, so, uh, and that's that's much harder to change, I think, because it's not a matter of invest gearing up for investment. You know, it's a matter of persuading people that you know, please, you know, don't waste so much food, um, and you know, be more careful with your with what you buy. Um, it's also a little bit um, maybe you know you could improve this by by changing the sort of sell by dates. You know, we're quite conservative about sell by dates, not least because people are afraid of you know that that you'll get sued. You know, if you if you're uh, even a little bit uh, um, uh, kind of careless, as it were, about about uh, saying you know this this product is good for whatever three days right. a week or whatever. Um, so we tend to be very cautious about that, uh, and 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 one result is that people look at the packet and it says you know sell by, uh, eat by, consume by a certain date, and it's like one day after that, and we throw away perfectly good food on those grounds. Especially with canned items, people <laughs> tend to do that, right? Yes, right. I, we just have a, a few minutes left, and I'm afraid I've not given you enough time to address this subject adequately. We'll ha have to have another conversation. But let's talk about climate change. And, and you say that agriculture is not just a victim of climate change, but it's also a cause. And uh, there have been some uh, really striking examples in certain parts of the world uh, where climate change has had a severe impact on, on as, as you described, the rhythm of farming. Yeah. Um, so climate change is a really big issue for farming. And one of the reasons I was saying that uh, right at the beginning, that, you know, we fear that increasing um, food production 70% in the next 40 years might be more difficult than, it, than, than increasing by 150% in the past 40 years is that in the past 40 years we haven't faced the problem of climate change and in the next 40 years we probably will. Um, and that's one of the reasons that it will be more difficult. So climate change contributes, sorry, agriculture contributes to climate change um, in a few ways. I mean, uh, a simple one is that, you know, when you cut down a rainforest in order to, you know, plant it with something or, or use it for pasture, you know, that, 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 that contributes to climate change. It contributes to um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, cows contribute to greenhouse gas emissions in the most direct way by belching. Um, uh, agriculture in total probably contributes in these various ways a bit less than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. That's the second most after, after energy production. You know, it's a lot. Um, and in particular, it contributes a great deal of, um, uh, of two particularly kind of toxic greenhouse gases, uh, methane and nitrous oxide, um, uh, which stay in the atmosphere a very long time um, and, uh, you know, are, you know, are particularly damaging. Um, in terms of climate change. So uh, uh, agriculture is a sort of big contributor. Um, that's, why, that's why I say it's a big contributor. It's also a massive victim. Um, we don't quite know how much. There are all sorts of weird feedback loops that we don't really know what will happen, but it will probably sort of disrupt the world's water balance a bit and make some um, areas, uh, uh, you know, wetter, uh, but too wet. Some areas that it will make them too dry, it will improve a few areas. I mean, probably sort of in Russia and southern Siberia, it will turn 
land, which is now you know, on the edge of being a bit too cold to grow wheat, into kind of good wheat-growing areas. That's probably true for Canada, too. Um, so, I mean, it will benefit. It will get, provide some benefits. The extra CO2 in the atmosphere will be a benefit as well, though we don't know how much. But if you think plants eat CO2, so, you know, if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, that's more food for the plants. Um, we know that in principle that will happen. What we don't know is how much of a benefit it is. And we probably think that that benefit will be outweighed by the other things, as I said, the kind of effect on the water cycle, the desiccation of some lands, the, um, and just the sheer variety, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the interruption to the seasonal beat. You know, all, all farmers depend on the rhythm of the seasons. Indeed, all nature depends on the rhythm of the seasons. You know, you, you plant at a particular time, just in time to catch, you know, the, the warming uh, uh, of the earth, or, or if you're planting, you know, winter wheat, you, you plant it so that, you know, the, 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 the snow can fall and the, 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 wheat, the wheat seed lie, you know, dormant and ready for a certain length of time. And, you know, if this rhythm of the seasons is disrupted, you know, it disrupts farming. And I quote... Small actually, changes can make a big difference. Yeah. We are I mean, about to run out of time. Small changes can make a big difference. Uh, and that's a big problem for climate change. Before we run out of time, I, I want to congratulate Flemings from Poland who knew that seven pounds of corn is needed to produce one pound of beef. We are almost out of time, John, but I want to ask you just uh, one question and ask you to answer it as, uh, as quickly as you, you can. Will we be successful? Can we feed nine billion people? Yeah, we can if we invest in agricultural research properly, if we can um, get very poor producing areas in Africa to double their yields, which I think we can do. And, you know, if we sort of encourage what's been going on, something we haven't talked about much, which is the livestock revolution, if we keep the livestock revolution going, then yes, I believe that we, we can not only feed the 9 billion, but we will be able to feed all the hungry people around at the moment. So for the first time ever, I think, we could feed the whole world adequately. Well, that's on a good. That's a good note to Yeah, I mean, on. I'm I'm cautiously <laughs> optimistic about it. I want to thank you, John, for for sharing your time with us, and and most importantly, thank you for writing such an interesting report that will be dated February 26, 2011, and the report is the nine billion people question. Um, a special report on feeding the world. I want to remind our audience, if you're not already a subscriber, please do go to economist.com to start your subscription today. Please also visit our website, dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ, to sign up for latest updates and information on our program, Global IQ with the Economist. You can register for our March 18th program, which will be a fascinating one. Uh, I'll be talking with editor-in-chief of The Economist, John Mickelthite, and the insider's analysis, the editor's report, the role of the state. And given what's happening in the world today, won't that be especially interesting? The World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth is one of 80 councils around the country. So to find a World Affairs Council near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America in association with The Economist. And I want to thank our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.